If you've ever had uh, the experience of the wrath of mother, uh, I uh, was thinking back this morning to uh, Mother's Day uh, about 25 years ago, I think, and I forgot Mother's Day. And my two brothers forgot Mother's Day. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen my mum so disappointed. She has that hurt face. She doesn't get angry, she's just disappointed. And, And there's no atoning for that. It doesn't matter how many more Mother's Days you do remember, there's always the one you forgot. It doesn't matter how well behaved you are for the rest of your life, there's always the Mother's Day you forgot. And that is something of a picture, a small picture of the issue we come to look at this morning. How it is that a perfect God with perfectly high standards can, in the words of one of our songs we just sung there, highly esteem us. How is it that we can come to be highly esteemed by God when we have forgotten so many Mother's Days and lived as though God is not God? Of course, we've seen it all through our service as well in in the Creed. Jesus died for us and rose again. We think about how it is that God comes to do that in such a way that glorifies himself and blesses us massively. Let me pray as we come to uh, this passage in Romans together. Let's pray. Our Father, you are holy, 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 far uh, above all uh, power and authority. You cannot uh, even look on sin. And yet somehow by your uh, infinite wisdom and by your amazing grace, you have made a way for that sinful people to be accounted righteous and enter into your presence And we long to have clarity on these things so that we can rejoice in them. Please uh, be with me in my words now. Uh, Please help us to see in your word, the Bible, uh, with great joy, uh, how it is that you have come to make us not only clean, but perfect in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in an eight-week series looking at how it is God saves us, and we're right into the middle Uh, in the doctrine of justification this morning. Last week we looked at uh, repentance and faith and and we ended by seeing how those uh, bring us into uh, union with Christ, faith union. Our faith in Jesus binds us to him. And we observed uh, all of the ways, uh, all the times in the Bible where uh, in Christ or with Christ or by Christ uh, come up, particularly in Paul's letters. It's just there all through all of his letters We are bound to Christ. That's the doctrine of faith union, that we become one with Jesus as we trust in him. And that is bound up to this doctrine of justification. The two things are inextricably bound together. Justification was the centre of the Reformation. From the moment Martin Luther sat in his tower room and began to work on the book of Romans in the teen, the 15 teens, And and he wrestled with this this language of grace, God's unrighteousness and grace to us. And Luther was prepared to stand up before the imperial uh, court and risk his own martyrdom to defend this doctrine. Because it is absolutely central to biblical Christianity. It was and remains, therefore, a controversial doctrine... Because it is the heart of everything, not just the heart of our our doctrine uh, or the heart of the Bible, but the heart of human history, 
It is central to everything. And and it centres on this question. Uh, Who will you trust to make you right with God? And the Apostle Paul's just spent three chapters, Romans 1 to 3, showing us that every person, whether Jew or Gentile, is a sinner. That is, by nature, habitually sinning. Okay, the character of sinfulness. Uh, They fail to obey the moral commands of God. In other words, there is a massive gap between uh, what God has made us to be and what we actually are. And if you're not sure that applies to you, if perhaps you somehow deceived yourself into thinking that you are perfect, I wonder, uh, have you loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength, and loved your neighbour as yourself, all the time, for your whole life? Or have you got a catalogue of missed Mother's Days that you can recount? Of course you haven't lived like that, and neither have I. And that creates two problems. I want to see there are two problems here in our passage that the doctrine of justification seeks to deal with. And we have to see both of them, otherwise we will construe a faulty understanding of what God has had to do for us. Uh, The first problem is there in verse 25. Have a look down with me, please. In God's forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That is, God had passed over the sins of uh, his saints in the Old Testament. I think of King David. He got to remain king, though he was an adultering murderer. He was many other things, but those things were certainly true for him. And it appears that God has simply passed over those. He's brushed them under the carpet. The sins that were committed beforehand went unpunished. And so it appears to be that God is actually unrighteous. He doesn't care about injustice. It's the question of God's reputation. God, you see, is holy and perfect, and he must be seen by the universe to be holy and perfect. But he appears to be unrighteous because he's passed over him. And so God must punish all sin in the end in order to vindicate his character. Think about how we would respond if God never punished the rapists and the murderers. It's one thing for our criminal justice system to fail in some of these things, isn't it? Our judges, our lawyers, our juries, they don't have perfect knowledge. They don't don't know for sure that so-and-so did the crime and so they can't punish. But if God, who knows everything, down to the intentions of the thoughts of our hearts, doesn't bring justice, perfect justice, well then he's just sweeping sin under the carpet. He is being unjust, manifestly so. And so God will punish every sin. And that brings the second problem that God's got to deal with. That's made clear in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his perfect standard, his perfect holiness, his perfect justice. And we fall short of that, so we must experience God's perfect justice. Because our lives fall short of what God made us to be. And he says, all have done that, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male, female, we've all done it. 
we deserve to be punished. And those two problems go together. God must uphold his perfect standards or else he's not perfect. But because we are not perfect, we must be condemned to hell. And yet God desires to save us. So how is it that that can happen? Justification is courtroom language. It is being brought into the courtroom of God. He is the judge. We are in the dock. He knows the depths of your heart. And yet he wants to accept you. How is that possible? For God to be holy, he must care about sin far more than we do. He has to hate it. He cannot look on it. He cannot simply sweep it under the carpet or he fails to be God. And so if we are to be justified, that is, if we are to be acceptable in God's sight, then we must actually be righteous in his sight. So let's make our our question this morning a little more precise, shall we? It's the question, let me be clear, that every single person in the world is going to have to answer when we stand before God on the the day of judgment. God himself is going to ask us, why should I let you into heaven? On what basis should I consider you to be fit for my perfect kingdom? And so we must ask ourselves, on what basis can a sinner like you and I be considered righteous before God? On what basis can a sinner like me be considered righteous before a holy God? That's the question that Romans 3 and 4 is seeking to address. And we begin with God's righteousness revealed. Look at verse 21 with me, would you? It's a key transition in the book. So I've just said chapters 1 to 3 address God's anger being revealed against sin. From chapter 1 verse 18 onwards, God's anger is righteously being revealed. But now something else is being revealed. The righteousness of God has been made known. This little section from verse 21 to 26 gives us the the doctrine, if you like, and then the rest of our passage unpacks it for us. And verse 26 is the punchline. Righteousness is revealed by a demonstration. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. And Paul gives us two parts to this demonstration. Have a look at verse 26 with me, please. At first, God reveals his righteous character. He vindicates his name by proving himself to be just, right. It's probably helpful because it's a little obscured in our English translation because the English language doesn't work in quite the same way that Greek does. That whenever you see the word just, justice, justification, or righteous, right, upright, righteousness, those are basically the same word in Greek. Okay, we don't have a, a word righteousified, so we have to have justified. We don't have justiceness, so we have to have righteousness. But basically, they're the same word in the Greek. Okay? So verse 26 says, so as to be right, just. Righteous, be seen to be what he is. What God has done has demonstrated his righteousness by righteously judging sin. 
How is that? How is it God has judged sin? Verse 25 tells us, doesn't it? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement being a made-up word that basically means bringing two things together as one, us and God. God took all the sin of his people who would ever live and laid those sins on Jesus and then punished him, sacrifice. He exacted justice for us on him. God is just, he hates sin. If you like, there there is a future day of judgment coming when God will judge everybody for the sins they've committed. And God brought that future judgment against us as Christians into the past, into history, and judged it on Jesus. So that slate is wiped clean. God's anger has been drained against us because he's poured it out all of it on Jesus. Of course, that raises questions, doesn't it? Isn't that unfair? Isn't Jesus the innocent bystander who's getting punished in the place of somebody else? Which I think there are two things that we must say to that. The first is, Jesus is God. He chose to do this. It was his plan. He, He came in order to die. He volunteered. There's no injustice. God is punishing himself for us. But secondly, remember our doctrine of faith union from last week. See, as Christians, we are not independent of Jesus. We are bound up with him. So much so that our sin actually belongs to him. When Jesus accepted you, he accepted your sin as well. He accepted the whole package. He took possession of all of it. And so our sin belongs to him. And he is punished righteously. He's punished for, dare I say it, his sin. That we committed. Now that of course leads naturally to the other side of the equation. The second part of God's righteousness being revealed. See God will not punish Christians. On that final day of judgment. Because God's anger has been drained. He will not punish the same crime twice. If you like. But God does something more here. He doesn't simply wipe the slate clean. He reveals his righteousness, notice, as the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Here you see, God's righteousness is not his character, which is demonstrated in his justice. It is his righteous saving acts. It is both who God is and what God does in justifying us. You see, for us to be considered righteous before God... It's not enough that our slate is wiped clean, as though we had never sinned. Because God's standards are perfect, not neutral. It must be as if we had lived a perfect life. It's not enough to have the slate wiped clean. We must appear before God as though we have lived a perfect life. And so there is an exchange. Just as our sin belongs to Jesus... So Jesus' perfect life belongs to us by rights. Paul makes this clear in another book in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, I want to be found in Christ, notice that in Christ language, that faith union language, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is not because of things I have done, but that which is through faith in Christ, that union language again, 
the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That is a righteousness given to me by God through the faith that I have in Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here. Not having a righteousness of my own, but having what we call an alien righteousness. A righteousness that belongs to somebody else that is being given to me. Christ's righteousness. See, Jesus takes possession of our sin, and by the same act of faith union, by the same act of trusting in Jesus, we are given his perfect life. And God looks at us as those who have lived a perfect life. And so we are justified. We have a right to, to acquittal in the courtroom of God. We have a right to stand before God as his children. We'll think about that in a few weeks' time. Jesus takes our place and dies. We take Jesus' place and live. That's the great exchange at the heart of Christianity. And so God solves both problems. He is seen to be just because he punishes sin. And he is seen to be merciful and perfectly righteous by making righteous those who aren't righteous naturally. That's why Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, there is now, that is right now, if you're trusting in Jesus, perhaps you trust Jesus for the first time today, right now we can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are new people with a new status acceptable to God. Now let's briefly flesh this out. Show you? That's the, the basic statement of the doctrine, a big swap. Jesus gets what we deserve, we get what he deserves, and God is seen to be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Let's notice, please, verse 24. We are justified freely by his grace. And that's what the, the, the reformers called sola gracia, by grace alone. It's God's choice. He isn't compelled to do it, but he chooses to do it. He would be perfectly just and be seen to be perfectly just if he punished every single person who'd ever lived. But he also wants to be seen to be merciful and the one who makes righteous those who aren't righteous. His free grace. By what means are we saved? Notice verse 22. Please look with me. Verse 22 This righteousness is given through faith in in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, That word given, gift, is, is the grace word again. We are graced it. God freely gives us by faith. That is what the reformers called sola fide. By faith alone, we are saved by Jesus alone, through God's grace alone, not by anything we've done. Through faith alone, the the thing that you have to have to be saved is faith in Jesus. That's it. Now, it's really important that we pause at this point to, to, to sum up. I want us to be as clear as we can be about this doctrine. Paul clearly says that God sent Jesus to die in our place. Atoning sacrifice. We are justified freely by his grace through faith, through trusting in Jesus and being bound to him by faith union. Importantly, we've seen that this recognises that we are naturally sinners. And it upholds both the perfect justice and holiness of God and the salvation of his people. It's really quite clever. 
Now, now I labour this because various other religions and unorthodox branches of the church propose a different understanding of justification. It's why it's debated. It's why uh, we're still separated from the, the Roman Catholic Church, for example. And each system of salvation, if you like, wherever you look for it, is going to ask you to put your trust somewhere. And it's crucial you put your trust in the right place, because as we've seen, it is trusting Jesus alone for our salvation that makes us justified. So if you move your trust away from Jesus to something else, then you won't be justified anymore. It's crucial. So, for example, Islam teaches you not to trust Jesus. In the end, you have to trust two things in Islam. You have to trust that Allah is merciful, whatever that means. I think what that means essentially is he lowers his standards below perfection so that you can actually hit the targets. That is, he's not really holy anymore. He's not really perfect. And you have to trust that you've done enough. You have to trust that you've been good enough and that God's standards will drop enough so that they meet in the middle and you can be acceptable to Allah. In other words, where do you put your trust? You put your trust in yourself. And really that's at work in, in almost every other religious system they've going. And you find the same thing in the medieval Catholicism that Luther was raised in. Uh, the phrase that he was taught was, do your best and God will do the rest. You can't be perfect, but you can do enough that God will consider your 20% to be 100% and it'll be fine. Now, that's a lovely soundbite and terrible theology. Basically, justification in that system is achieved by living a good enough life. Not a perfect life. God's standards can never really be hit. But God looks at you working hard at being good and says, that'll do. Now, God doesn't want us to work hard at being godly. We'll come on to sanctification in week seven. Six or seven, six, I think. But in the end, you're still trusting yourself. You're still trusting that you've done enough. And of course, as Luther realised, he could never do his best anyway. Luther spent six hours in confession every day, recognising that everything he thought and did basically wasn't his best. There's a tender conscience for you. See, that's not grace alone. That's works. That's saving yourself. I want us to see this because it is the very nature of every religious system to address this question. How is it that I can stand before a holy God and not be consumed? Everybody is proposing, everybody has a, a way of answering this question. For many, it's God's got to forgive me, hasn't he? That's what he does. Sweeping it under the carpet. That doesn't uphold God's holiness. None of these systems uphold God's perfection. Only the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf upholds both the salvation of people and the holiness and perfection of God. And it's not just that we need to see this, as though it's a 21st century problem. We live in a multicultural city. Everybody's got a system of salvation. It's actually Paul's addressing it too. In the rest of our passage, Paul is faced with the question, okay, isn't this a new thing, Paul? Isn't this Christian thing a new thing? Salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone must be a new thing. Jesus is a new thing. 
So what about a thousand years of Jewish history? But what about uh, the Old Testament? Surely the Old Testament says, if you do enough good things, you'll be right with God. Isn't that what happens in the Old Testament? And if ancient Judaism could do it, if you could be right under your own strength with God in the Old Testament, then why do we need Jesus? Islam might be right. Roman Catholicism might be right. Your friend who says, I'm a good person, isn't that enough? He's right. And so Paul takes on that question in the hardest possible way in our passage by tackling the father of Judaism, Abraham. If he can prove that Abraham was justified by grace alone through faith alone, then he proves that this has always been the way that God has saved his people. And it also proves that other schemes fall far short of this. If Abraham, who was a faithful man, if anyone can be righteous, Abraham is righteous under his own strength. If he had to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, then it proves that all other systems uh, fall far short of honouring God. And so let me show you that this is how God has always saved his people. You can see this is on Paul's mind right from the beginning of our passage. Verse 21, he begins with apart from the law and to which the law and the prophets testify he's conscious this is the question that's coming up here is a righteousness that is not achieved by obeying rules says paul but but the old testament law the law with a capital l required this it pointed towards it and this is paul's bold move no he says you cannot be saved by the law But the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, bears witness to this righteousness in Jesus. Justification has always been through Jesus. God passed over the sins of Abraham and David because Jesus was coming to die for them. And the rest of the passage takes up this idea and unpacks it. Look at verse 31. He says, I uphold the law. I'm not tearing the Old Testament out of my Bible and throwing it away. I'm upholding the law. And so he goes to Abraham. And Abraham's critical for a couple of reasons, isn't he? Uh, The first is obvious. He's the first Jew. He's the founder of Judaism. He's the one that God called uh, out of Haran. He's the one that God gave the promises to. He's the one who uh, establishes uh, what it is to be Jewish. To be God's people. And secondly, he is their model. The Bible appears to present him as the model of getting right with God through works. And Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter in verse 3 of chapter 4. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it, that is his faith in God, was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15 verse 6. God's establishing his covenant with Abraham. He considers Abraham righteous through, through his faith, credited to him as righteous. His faith was a work. It seems that God looked on the faith of Abraham and said, that is a sufficient work to be considered justified. Moreover, the Jews of Paul's day looked forward to to Abraham's faithfulness. And the word faith and faithfulness are often the same thing. It's context that tells you which meaning. They looked forward to to Abraham's faithfulness, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, later on and they said look his faith and faithfulness are what God saw in other words God saw that Abraham was faithful to him 
and considered him righteous on the basis of his works. And then God gives the law, doesn't he? Later on in the Old Testament, he gives the law through Moses and he says, do this and live. And those, those words are actually in the Bible, do this and live. So doesn't the whole Old Testament scream out to you that you can be justified by obeying the law? In chapter 3, the focus, the, the, the key word here is faith. Faith union. He, he's, he's explaining how justification does work. But his discussion shifts in chapter 4 to focus on a different word. Abraham clearly had faith. It says there in verse 3, doesn't it? He believed God. The believe word, faith, trust, they're all the same thing. The word that Paul will wrestle with in the rest of our passage here is the word credited. It was credited to him as righteousness. This is the language of the balance sheet. If you're not an accountant, I'm sorry, I quite like that. How does faith add up to an acceptable, perfect righteousness before God? So verse 4 tells us what it can't mean. When you go to work, you, you work your hours and you get paid what I hope is a fair wage. The fact that you receive money doesn't mean that you've received a gift. It, it's fair pay for a fair day's work. So verse 4, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. You know, it's not really crediting at all. You're receiving money, but you've expended yourself in labour. It's not really a gift at all. It's not really crediting. That's not what the word credited means, says Paul. If Abraham's faith was a work that merits justification, then its wages are not a gift. It's not really justification at all. It's not being declared righteous. It's being recognised as righteous. If his faith was a sufficient work, then he can stand before God under his own righteousness but that's not what the text says rather verse 5 to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly their faith is credited as righteousness and notice first then Abraham is being labelled as ungodly here which would be pretty scandalous, I think, to the people uh, of, of Paul's generation. But he's merely saying, uh, Abraham is not a perfect man. doesn't mean he's the worst man possible. It just means he falls short of God's perfect standards. He's unfit for God's presence in and of himself. And notice then that faith here, trusting, is the opposite of working. That doesn't mean that Abraham uh, sat on his hands. He was a faithful man. But trusting God is the opposite of trusting your works. So it's not that he didn't have works, but he knew his works weren't sufficient. So his trusting God is in the place of trusting himself. He, he's accepting a free gift. And third, notice the object of faith. People say, don't they, I wish I had your faith. What they, what they fail to recognise is uh, we all have faith in something. We're all trusting something to get right with God. The difference is the object of our faith. Abraham trusted God. Specifically, he trusted the God who justifies the ungodly. He's the God who makes promises and keeps them. The Jews were focused so much on the fact that Abraham was a faithful man and that he was then justified. They completely missed the mechanism by which it, it happened. It's God who justifies. 
He does it for the ungodly who have faith in him. This isn't wages, but a free gift. It's grace. In other words, justification has always been, from Abraham onwards, by free grace. And he makes the same point again by quoting uh, Psalm 32. Uh, David here speaking, verse 6 to 8. Verse 8, he uses the word counted there. He, the Lord will never count, that is credit. See, if it was on the basis of works, David is absolutely screwed, isn't he? David the murderer, David the adulterer. But he, he, he sings this psalm, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, who the Lord will not count their sins against them. If it's, if it's by what you do, David is in real trouble. But God takes an unrighteous man and makes him righteous. That's the point of the text. But something is credited, isn't it, to both Abraham and David? Something that wasn't theirs by rights, something that was given to them by God. Faith is not the work here. Faith is the the means. Faith is the open-handed reception of a gift. It is clinging on to the promise of God and believing that God is faithful to his promises. It's not a, a work, but it is the thing that God asks of us so that he can put into our empty hands righteousness by Christ. Now there are two implications of this that Paul draws out. That we've been, uh, the first of which we've seen over and over again in our series so far. And it is this, there is no place for boasting. One of my big aims for this series is to kill our pride, to kill our boasting in ourselves. If Abraham didn't have any sufficient works as a ground for boasting, then neither do we. And that's what he says in verse 2, isn't it? If Abraham was justified by works, if he was, he had something to boast about. In other words, if you can trust in yourself, you can stand before God and say, I've done enough. I should get in on my own merits. Which is what most world religions are saying to God. But verse 2 says he can't. He can't stand before God and boast. And that's what verses 27 and 28 of chapter 3 are about. You can have a look at them later. But it's saying there's no place for boasting. Not for the Jew, not for the Gentile. Nobody can boast before God because it's a free gift. You can be pleased that you've got the gift, but you can't brag that you've earned it. Otherwise, it's not a gift. And secondly, Paul expands on who gets to have the free gift. See, if it's by works, then the Jews have a leg up, don't they? They've had the law for a thousand years. They they could stand before God and say, we've been keeping this for generations, and the Gentiles, they're, they're in trouble. But if it's a free gift by faith, then the door is open for anybody to come to Christ. It's open to the Jew, and it's open to the Muslim, it's open to the Roman Catholic, it's open to the atheist, it's open to you, whoever you are, whatever you have done, whatever's in your past, what matters is not what you've done, but who do you trust? And he makes this point most clearly in verses 9 to 12 of our passage. For brevity, let me summarise, we haven't got time to go into it in detail, do look at it later, it's wonderful. He basically says... Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, before he was Jewish. 
He was still a man from a foreign land at this point. He's received the promises, he trusts God, he is justified. Then he receives the sign of circumcision, which is the thing that separates Jews from Gentiles. Therefore, the Gentiles can be welcomed in, just like Abraham was. If you copy Abraham, if you accept him as the model of faith, then it doesn't matter what your background is. And to the Jews, he is their physical ancestor, but that counts for very little. Verse 12, he is also the father of the circumcised, yes, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. You can be Jew, physically descended from Abraham, so long as you also have faith. The Jewishness by itself doesn't matter. The faith matters. Have the faith of Abraham. But because he was justified before he was circumcised, he's also the father of all the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, who also copy his faith, verse 12. So he's the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised. And all the righteousness might be credited to them. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Now look, there's a load more I could say that I probably want to say. I am tempted, but it's Mother's Day and we've got lunch planned, so I won't. But let me, let me end with a few thoughts on how this doctrine ought to, to send us out from here uh, with our heads held high and a, and a song in our hearts. Let me begin by asking you this question. It's the most important question you will ever answer in your life. It is the only question that really matters at the end of your life. How can you stand before a holy God? Paul would say, however you answer that question, whatever system you want to hold on to, you have to uphold these truths. One, God is perfectly holy and will, uh, he's committed to justice Absolutely. Everybody will get what they deserve. He must punish sin. And secondly, you have to uphold the fact that we're ungodly, just like Abraham. And so now the question is sharper. How can you be justified, declared right with God, fit for his presence, fit for his perfect eternal kingdom, when God is holy and we are not? That is the question God will ask you. And if your answer rests in any way on something you have done, that is heresy. And I don't use that word lightly. And you are in trouble. It puts you outside of the historic Christian faith. Justification is by grace alone. It is the free gift of God. As he looks at us through the lens of Christ and sees perfection in our lives. So are you trusting Jesus? Are you trusting him alone for your justification? And if you are, let, let that sink in for a moment. Because it means the old self is dead. Your old nature died on the cross with Christ. You were bound to him as he died. Uh, the, the, the sinner label that used to belong to you does not belong to you anymore. Sin may continue in your, in your life. It will do. 
we'll come to that in, in a couple of weeks' time as we think about uh, what we do with that in an ongoing way as Christians. But it no longer defines who you are. You are no longer a sinner. That sinful part of you died with Christ. And if you sit here this morning, knowing that your life is not good enough for God, then know this, if you trust in Jesus this morning, God will look at you through Christ and see only beauty. Which means freedom for us. Freedom from the condemnation of the law, Romans 5 verse 1. It is freedom from guilt and shame. We, we bring all of that to Christ and see it nailed to the cross and we walk away as freed people, day after day, freed people. They have no power over us anymore because Jesus has drained God's wrath at every single one of them. It means that we have a new status and we do ourselves no favours by calling ourselves sinners. We're reminding ourselves of our old nature. Yes, sin, sin continues, but we're not shaped by that anymore. Rather, God sees us as perfectly obedient in his sight. And he treats us as such. He treats us like his perfectly obedient children. And so we should be able to walk out of here this morning, this afternoon, with our lives utterly changed with our self-understanding completely transformed. You might have come in here this morning thinking, I'm a terrible sinner. Well, you, you probably have been. But you walk out of here a justified sinner. Somebody who has been totally transformed. The sin you came in here with can be left behind at the foot of the cross because Jesus has died for it already. It doesn't have to define who you are. The baggage you're carrying from years ago must be left behind. You see, if you're a Christian, it's not simply that you can leave it behind. It is that you must leave it behind. To truly trust that Jesus has died for you is to leave all of that baggage at the cross. It is to say, I don't want it anymore. It doesn't belong to me anymore. Jesus has taken it away. It's not me. Real faith leaves our sin nailed to the cross and delights in our new status as freed men and women. God's treasure. He delights in you if you're a Christian. Not that that should make us proud. There's no room for boasting. Boasting is not faith. Rather, it's pride. It's, it's actually putting ourselves forward. And rather than Jesus, our pride, our boasting, moves us away from Christ, not towards him. And so the safest place for every one of us this morning is clinging to the cross of Christ, feeling the beams of God's love, his favour, his delight streaming down on us. It should cause us to delight in the one who justifies the ungodly in such a way that he actually magnifies his own justice and his goodness. Shall we pray? Our Father, we give glory to you and you alone because you, in your mercy and in your justice, have saved us, have made us fit for your presence. It is a, a mind-boggling idea beyond our comprehension, but please give us the eyes of faith to really grasp 
what you've done. We long to, to walk out of here with our sin laid down and our hearts warmed by the beams of your love and favour. Please restore us again this morning. Whatever we've done, whatever our week has been, however much we are struggling under the burden of guilt and shame, and perhaps some here, for the very first time, would you help them to lay down their burdens and simply trust in Jesus and receive every good thing that you promise to give. In his name we pray. Amen.